All right, open your Bibles up to the end of John chapter 15. We covered most of the chapter last week, except for the final two verses. We're going to start with those this morning in John chapter 15, verse 26, and we're going to go through uh, the the, uh, verse 15 of, of chapter 16 today. So if you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 959. We're going to continue this Uh, what the Bible scholars uh, refer to often as the farewell discourse, okay? This is the section of John's gospel that we're in. Uh, If you haven't been with us, we've been preaching through the gospel of John. This farewell discourse began at the end of chapter 13 after Judas went out from them to go betray Jesus. And, And we'll look at the conclusion of it next week as we finish up chapter 16. Now, this is just mere hours before Christ's crucifixion. He'd washed his disciples' feet. He sent Judas out to begin his betrayal. He told them, that the remaining 11 disciples, to love one another as he had loved them. He told them that he would be leaving them soon. He encouraged them not to be troubled because he would send his Holy Spirit to remain with them and be in them forever. He told them that the world would hate them and that they needed to remain in him and his love and keep his commands. That's a lot right? It's a lot in one night. He spent three years with them, and they're getting this concentrated uh, deluge of instructions from their master who is leaving them. And now he would shift once again to the focus of the coming Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit who would bring all these things together and enable the disciples to understand and apply them to their lives. Again, it, it might be tempting for us to read this passage and immediately assume that that because the Holy Spirit is given to all believers, which we know through the the testimony of the the entire New Testament, it would be easy for us to, to immediately assume or tempting for us to immediately assume that because the Holy Spirit's been given to all believers, then these words of Jesus are universal here as well. But we need to remember that he was saying these things specifically at this time mere hours before his crucifixion, to these 11 disciples who would become apostles that helped lay the foundations of the church with Christ as the chief cornerstone. In this passage, Jesus was talking about how the Holy Spirit would particularly minister to these first disciples after Christ's death, resurrection, and exaltation. So we need to put it in that context and we need to leave it in that context first. Application for us actually comes and is actually enriched from understanding how the Holy Spirit first ministered to them so that they then could go and minister to the world. And eventually that ministry would come to us. And so this is God's word. And as we read in 1 Corinthians 2 this morning during our prayer time, Paul said he did not come with words of wisdom, but in the Spirit's power. And so I want to pray that that would be true for us this morning as well. Father, I pray that that it would not be my words that convince, but it would be your word that convinces us. Yet again of our need for Jesus, yet again of your provision in him, and yet again that you've given us all things in Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms including the spirit of Christ himself to dwell in us, to give us understanding, to seal us for the day of redemption and to keep us in Christ 
joyfully loving and obeying him until he returns. Father, we pray that, that uh, this morning the proclamation of your word would be a demonstration of your spirit's power for the glory of Jesus' name. We pray this. Amen. I want you to think of someone that you cannot live without. Okay? Got somebody in mind? Right now, you're probably thinking if you're married, maybe it's your spouse, or if you're, you're a, a, a kid, maybe you're thinking it's your parents, or whatever, okay? Um, or it's a best friend or somebody, somebody that you just, you feel like, man, if they're gone for even like an hour, my whole world falls apart. Up becomes down, left becomes right, like all of these things, right? Now, the Sunday school answer, we know this. If I say, who can you not live without? It's Jesus Christ, Right? But that's actually not just the Sunday school answer. That is the real answer. That's the reality that we all need to be uh, confronted with. As much as I love my wife and need my wife, I could lose her and still have Christ and be okay. The, the tr- the, that, that is not true the other way around. Okay? Here's, here's the the... the problem, if you will. I think we forget the Sunday school answer or we just treat it as a Sunday school answer and not the actual reality. I think sometimes we're prone to believe functionally, even though we might say verbally that we need Christ, that we need his spirit, that we need his word, that we need his church, that we, that we functionally live as if we are left to follow Jesus by our own or on our own, to figure it all out. Our own efforts, our own understanding, our own wisdom, all these things. Jesus is actually going to tell his disciples uh, in this passage, not only can they not live without him, but he will say that they also cannot live, they cannot do this Christian life, what, they're, what he's called them to do, without the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. So here's our our main point, because it's true for them, it's also true for us. No disciple of Jesus Christ can live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. No disciple of Jesus Christ can live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus will tell his disciples that it's good that he left them, that he's going to leave them, and he would send the Holy Spirit to them. It was through Christ's leaving that he would send his Holy Spirit to minister to them and then through them so that every disciple, including these first 11, can have a relationship with Jesus that's closer, richer, and actually more complete than even these 11 disciples had while they were walking and talking with Jesus on the earth. When he was in the room with them, they weren't as close to him as they are or or as they were when the Holy Spirit came. Can you believe that? Isn't that amazing? In this morning's passage, we're going to see four ways that the Holy Spirit would minister to and through these first disciples. And then we'll talk about how we are able to reap the benefits, why this is beneficial then for us, because it was beneficial for them. When the Holy Spirit came, he would testify about Jesus. He would convict the world. He would guide these disciples into all the truth, and he would glorify Jesus. He would testify about Jesus, convict the world, guide these disciples into all truth, and glorify Jesus. Let's look at the first one. The Holy Spirit would testify about Jesus. We're going to start at the end of chapter 15. 
Last two verses, 26 and 27. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, let's not overlook the first word there in verse 26. Jesus didn't say, if the counselor comes, right? What did he say? When the counselor comes. This is a guarantee. Jesus doesn't promise things that he doesn't deliver on. Do you know that about him? He doesn't promise things that he doesn't deliver on. Back in chapter 14, we saw that the Greek word for counselor was this word paraclete, right? It it literally means one who is called alongside. Jesus told his disciples here that the counselor, the, the paraclete, the spirit of truth would testify alongside them as they testified to the truth of who Jesus is. Now, these 11 disciples had been with Jesus from the beginning of his earthly ministry for the past three and a half years or so. They'd seen his works. They heard his words firsthand. They were eyewitnesses. When you're looking for a testimony that's credible, what are you looking for? Someone who was there, right? Someone who saw, someone who heard firsthand. The Holy Spirit had also been with Jesus from the beginning of his earthly ministry. You remember John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus back in chapter 1? He said he saw the Holy Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and resting on Jesus just as God told him. And he testified that this Jesus was the Son of God. But the Holy Spirit had also been with Jesus before the beginning. Before the beginning's beginning, if you will. Right? Not just before the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's been with Jesus since before the beginning of creation. Because God has always existed as one God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One in the same in essence and in nature, but each person distinct in his role in creation, redemption, and the final consummation. That's why the Holy Spirit could be with Jesus and also be sent from the Father. And if the disciples had a credible testimony as eyewitnesses to all that Jesus said and did, then how much more credible was the testimony of the Holy Spirit who is the same God in essence and nature as Christ himself? Jewish law required the testimony of two witnesses for that testimony to be valid. And now we have the Spirit and the disciples, the apostles, which will ultimately result in the Word of God, which we will see. God the Son was promising to send his disciples, God the Spirit, from God the Father, so that their eyewitness testimony about Jesus would be dependent upon and authenticated by the testimony of God himself. Are you so thankful? God didn't just leave them to to figure out the story on their own. Gave them everything they needed, including himself. It's important for them to know that because of the opposition that they would face. Look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. I've told you these things, Jesus said, to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. Judas was a disciple who stumbled. 
Judas stumbled. The Greek word for stumble here gives the connotation of falling away into sin. But Jesus was telling his disciples these things so that they wouldn't end up like Judas, so that they would remain in him as he told them to do in chapter 15, so that they would not fall away. Jesus will not lose a single one that the Father gives to him. Remember that? Back in chapter 6, I believe. He made that clear. He was reminding his disciples of that reality here. He just told them in chapter 15 that the unbelieving world would hate them and persecute them because it hated him and persecuted him. Here he told them that that persecution wouldn't just come from wicked pagans, godless people. It would also come from religious people who actually thought that they were serving God by killing them. And yet they really weren't. They were really serving the devil because they knew they didn't know the Father, and they didn't know the Father because they refused to know the Son. And they were carrying out the desires of their true Father, the devil, as Jesus talked about in chapter 8. Think about all that the disciples have heard so far since Judas left the upper room. They've gotten this, again, this deluge of information, like a fire hose, right? Just bam, 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 one thing after another. And, and, and all of these things on their own were incredibly hard to grasp. And now they're stacking up. Hear this with me, with them. I'm going to leave you. The world will hate you. The spirit is coming to you. Those who kill you will think that they're doing so as an act of worship to God. And at that point, if you're a disciple in the room, you will, wait, hold on. What did you just say? They're going to kill us? Right? What? Come again? Hold on. They're going to kill us? Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the one that's supposed to come with the sword and rescue us from Rome and set up the kingdom where we get to reign with you? And now you're telling us, not only are you going to leave us and they're going to persecute us, but they're going to kill us? Thanks for supper, Jesus. Glad we at least have clean feet, right? Listen, if they were already distraught, and which they should have been, or, or, well, they shouldn't have been. Jesus told them not to be. But we can understand why, because we would feel the same way. If they were already distraught over the fact that Jesus was leaving them after they, they had just spent all this time with him, devoted their lives to him, imagine the fear that must have gripped their hearts now as Jesus told them that a time was coming when they would be killed for his name. Remember, they don't have the spirit yet. We'll see next week that, John, or that Jesus tells them, I'm telling you these things because I want you to have my peace. He said that already last week in chapter 15. Maybe it was chapter 14. My peace I give you, right? But notice what Jesus didn't say here in verse one. He didn't say, I've told you these things to keep you from dying. He didn't say it. He said, I told you these things to keep you from stumbling. One of my favorite passages is in Luke 22. It's, it's Luke's version of, of Jesus telling Peter that he'll deny him. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that you will not stumble. And when you have returned, in other words, when you have repented, why? Because you're gonna deny me three times. But you know what? Denial is not falling away. 
starts falling down. And Jesus gets us back up. He says, when you return, when you repent, when you come back, strengthen the brothers. Oh, I love that. I resonate with that. I've told you these things so that you will not stumble. His disciples needed to understand that falling away from God was actually more dangerous to them than being put to death by any man. They needed to know that not even death could separate them from Christ. They needed to be convinced that the hatred of the world was nothing compared to the help of the Spirit. Are you convinced of these things? Let's keep going. Look at verse 4. But I've told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asks me, where are you going? And yet because I've spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Once again, Jesus was telling his disciples ahead of time what would happen so that when it did happen, they would remember what he had said and they would trust him. He told them so that they wouldn't be surprised and stumble. He told them so that they would be strengthened and remain in him, that they would do what he commanded them to do. And when things happened exactly as he told them, they would see that he not only knew ahead of time that these things would be so, but that he was actually in control of everything the whole time. Isn't it good for us to know that God not only just knows about things, but that he's perfectly in control over them? Verse four, Jesus said, when their time comes. Back in verse two, he said, a time is coming. This is language we've heard before. It's similar language that he's used throughout John's gospel to talk about his own impending death and resurrection and exaltation. Chapter 12, he's, for example, he said that the, the hour has come, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In essence, here he was telling his disciples, listen, I'm telling you these things now because a time is coming when it will feel like everything is lost that the oppressors and the persecutors have won, that their victory has come. Their time of victory has come. But don't be afraid and don't be fooled. Their hour of victory is really their hour of defeat. Why? Because my hour of defeat is really my hour of victory. And that means it's your hour of victory too. He didn't tell him these things until now because while he was with them, he took the brunt of the hatred and the persecution during his earthly ministry. We've seen this all throughout John's gospel, right? He'd been their help and shield. That was what we, we read at the end of Psalm 33 this morning before our music time. He had been their help and shield. He was the one that the Pharisees and the chief priests wanted to kill. They were focused on him. Isaiah 40, chapter, or chapter 40, verse 11 says he protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. The good shepherd here 
was protecting his flock while he was with them. He was gathering them in his arms, leading them to green pastures. But he was going away, and his disciples needed to know that they would still be protected after he was no longer physically present with them. They needed to know, they needed to learn how to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, for their God is with them. But they had so much sorrow over the news that Jesus was leaving them that they failed to grasp where he was going and why. Now, at first glance, his words here in verse 5 might seem contradictory. He said, none of you ask me where I'm going, right? Well, if we remember back to the conversations they've already had in the upper room, Peter asked where he was going in chapter 13, and Thomas asked a similar question in chapter 14. Jesus doesn't contradict himself, though. In both of those cases, they asked that question on the surface, but they didn't really want to know where he was going. The real concern that the disciples had was not, where are you going? The question behind their questions is the real concern that they had, and it was this, why are you leaving us at all? Here Jesus was pointing out that they were so grief-stricken over the sense of their own loss that they failed to realize that they would, what, all that they would gain through his departure. He's already told them, hey, listen, if I go, I'm coming back. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, right? I'm going to my father's house. I'm preparing a room for you. I'm going to take you back to be with me where I am. Right over their heads. All they heard was, I am leaving you. We feel this tension too sometimes, don't we? It's for your benefit that I, gain, that, that I go away, Jesus told them in verse 7. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. The if and the will are in the proper places there. If I go, I will send him to you. If I don't, he won't come. I'm going, and he's coming. It's counterintuitive as this statement was to the disciples, it would actually be better for them if Jesus left than if he stayed. It's not that Jesus and the Holy Spirit couldn't be in the same place ministering at the same time, but the Holy Spirit was gonna do something that Jesus couldn't do because of the limitations of his humanity. Jesus was with his disciples while he was on the earth, but there were times in, in John's gospel and other gospels where we see that Jesus physically goes away from them and they go out to look for him. Where'd he go? Can't find him. He's not here, right? When he wasn't present with them because he was physically somewhere else. In his humanity, Jesus couldn't be in two places at once. But in chapter 14, he told them that the Holy Spirit would be in them forever. Not just with them, but in them forever. When the Spirit came, they would never have to go looking for Jesus. Why? Because he would always be present with each of them through his indwelling Spirit. Even as they would spread out and, and go uh, start the church, Christ went with them through his Spirit. Remember, a couple weeks ago, we heard him say that he and the Father would love them and make their home with them. And the Holy Spirit would enable Christ to, to be present, not just with these disciples, but with all believers everywhere. This is, this is the incredible uh, reality of the Holy Spirit indwelling each believer, is that God was with you, Christ was with you all week leading up to this moment. 
We don't just gather together and then the Holy Spirit comes and dwells among us. The Holy Spirit's already in us, which means Christ is always with us, which means even as we go out as individual believers, Jesus goes with us. When I'm at my house or, or out wherever I'm at, Jesus is with me. When, wherever you're at, Jesus is with you. If you have the Holy Spirit in you as a follower of Christ, and now Jesus can be in more than one place at a time. There'd be no more physical limitation to Christ's presence. And while Jesus taught these disciples from the outside, the Holy Spirit would teach all believers from the inside. He would write God's law on their hearts and give them the desire and the ability to love and obey Jesus as part of the new covenant that the Father would establish through Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and exaltation, which leads to the greater reason that Christ was leaving. It wasn't just to resolve his physical limitations. There's more in view here. Remember, during his earthly ministry, his singular focus was to do the Father's will. This is what he had come to do. He was concerned with bringing the Father's plan of redemption to completion. The plan involved Jesus' earthly life, his death, his resurrection, and his return to the Father, followed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This was all part of the plan of God. And that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, not just on these disciples here, but on all believers everywhere. Unless Jesus left to accomplish what he had come to do, the Holy Spirit would not come and accomplish what he was going to do. The disciples would benefit from Jesus' departure because it meant that redemption would be accomplished for them by Jesus and applied to them by the Spirit through this new covenant that would be instilled in Christ through his resurrection, his death and his resurrection. The Spirit would testify to what Jesus had done and solidify it in their hearts, and he would serve as a validating witness to their own eyewitness testimonies of what Christ had done. And the Spirit and the disciples, as they testified together, then the Spirit would convict the world, which leads us to our second point. Look at verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, the world is guilty of sin, but it's also guilty of false righteousness and it's also guilty of corrupt judgment. This is what Jesus is talking about here. And the Holy Spirit would come and bring conviction in all of those areas. But he wouldn't just show the world its guilt and then sentence the world to God's judgment. Jesus says in, in chapter 3 to Nicodemus, the one who does not believe in me stands condemned already. Why? Because he doesn't believe in me, right? There's already condemnation there. So what's the conviction? The Holy Spirit convicts in order to convert. He convinces people of their guilt and then he calls them to repentance from their sin by turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world about sin. Why? Because people don't believe in Jesus. Remember what Jesus told the, the, the Jewish leaders in chapter eight, verse 23 and 24. He said, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world. 
right? I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If they believed Jesus, they would have been convinced of their guilt and turned to him in repentance. But in their unbelief, they remain ignorant of their need for his rescuing grace. Part of the Holy Spirit's convicting work is to convince unbelievers of their need for that grace by bringing their sin to light and then opening their eyes to the majesty and beauty and grace of the one who is the light of the world. The Spirit will also convict the world about righteousness. Because Jesus was going to the Father, the Holy Spirit would pick up that convicting work where Jesus left off. All throughout John's gospel, what had Jesus been doing? He'd been confronting the self-righteousness of the Jewish leaders. Light had come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil and they didn't want to be exposed. They hated me because I pointed out that their deeds were dark, that they're, they're, they, were, they had evil deeds, right? They persecuted Jesus because he healed people on the Sabbath, They accused him of breaking the law of Moses, but then Jesus turned around and proved that they were the ones that actually weren't keeping the law because they were trying to kill him, the innocent man. They prided themselves on having the law of Moses, but Jesus said that Moses would actually be their accuser because what? Moses wrote about him, and they didn't believe it. They didn't believe Moses, so they didn't believe Jesus. They boasted In chapter 8, that they were sons of Abraham, but Jesus revealed that they were actually sons of the devil because they were carrying out the devil's desires, again, by trying to kill him. Remember the blind man that Jesus healed on the Sabbath in chapter 9? The religious leaders, what did they do? They kicked him out of the synagogue for testifying to the work that Jesus had done. And what did Jesus do? He came and he and he, he pointed out the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders. And we saw that fully in chapter 12 when they fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. Ever hearing, not perceiving, ever seeing, or ever seeing and not perceiving, ever hearing and not listening. They had a false righteousness. In their self-righteous desire to seek their own glory, they condemned the one in whom no unrighteousness is ever or will ever be found. And the ultimate display of unrighteousness, they coerced the Roman governor to crucify the righteous one as a condemned criminal. But Christ's sacrificial death proved God's righteousness by showing that God leaves no sin unpunished. Why? Because self-righteousness or self-righteous men crucified Jesus, yes, but Jesus, the righteous one, willingly died according to the righteous and redemptive plan of the Father. Jesus was perfectly innocent, the very definition of righteousness. But he took our guilt to the cross and he died in our place. And then God vindicated his one and only son by raising him from the dead, proving that Jesus really is righteous and not guilty. And that his death was sufficient to pay the debt of our sin and our guilt. It's through Christ's death and resurrection that anyone can be truly righteous because when you confess your guilt and your need for forgiveness in God's redeeming grace, he forgives you of all your sin and he gives you the righteousness of his son. This is the grace of the gospel. Are you convinced of your guilt? 
and your need for forgiveness. You know that you're in a room full of guilty people, including the ones standing on the stage. The only difference is that some of us have been convicted by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Some of us have been convinced by the spirit of our false righteousness and have responded according to the spirit by running to Jesus for rescue. Conviction from the Holy Spirit is a gift of grace. It's meant to draw you to salvation and freedom in Christ, not to leave you condemned in your sin. Would you ignore that kind of conviction? Why not instead confess your guilt and, as, as we have and run to Jesus? Run to him. Turn from your sin. Trust in him right now. Like You don't have to wait till the end of the sermon. There's no, there's no, there's no specific prayer to pray. There, there's no, you don't come up here and, and receive Jesus by, by bowing right here at the stage. You believe. You believe in him. You say, he is right, and he paid the price for me. So don't wait. If you respond to conviction now, Jesus will set you free from condemnation for all eternity. Again, the beauty and the grace of the gospel. The Holy Spirit will also convict the world about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The sense in the Greek here in verse 11 is that the devil has been judged and continues to be judged and will never stop being judged. Chapter 12, shortly after Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to, to be glorified, essentially pointing to the, the imminent uh, crucifixion and resurrection and exaltation. He said uh, a few verses later, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of the world cast out. The cross is where Jesus would triumph over the ruler of this world and prove him to be the liar that he's always been. Always been. In chapter five, Jesus says that he judges justly because he judges only as he hears and he doesn't seek to do his own will, but the, one, the will of the one who sent him. In chapter eight, Jesus said that his judgment is true because it's not he alone who judges, but he and the father who sent him. In chapter seven, he told the religious leaders, you need to stop judging according to outward appearances and judge according to righteous judgment. The world judges unjustly. Unjustly, because the world has no righteousness of its own. Unjust judgment is false judgment. And f anything false is rooted in a lie. And all lies are born from the father of lies, himself, the ruler of this world, the devil, if he has been judged and continues to be judged and will never stop being judged, then what awaits for the world that perpetuates his lies except for judgment? On the last day, the world that judges unrighteously will be judged righteously by the one who is called the judge of all the earth. The world stands condemned already because it has misjudged Jesus Christ by not believing in him. The convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit is exactly that. It's ministry. 
It's ministry. It's the grace of God to convince us of our guilt and call us to repentance. And it is absolutely essential if anyone is going to be saved from judgment. The Holy Spirit would testify about Jesus. He would convict the world and he would also guide these apostles into all the truth. Look at verse 12 and 13. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will also speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. Now, can you imagine the overwhelming feeling of being one of those disciples? (laughs) Having heard all that you've already heard and then hear Jesus say these words in verse 12, I have more things to tell you, but you can't bear them right now right? Like, like, you say we can't bear the many things that you still have to tell us. Lord, we can't even bear the things that you've already told us. And Jesus knew that they wouldn't be able to bear all that he had to tell them on their own. No one can, no one can bear that. They needed the Holy Spirit to help them. And when the spirit of truth came, he would guide them into all the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that they would soon know everything about everything. They weren't going to become omniscient, but they were going to learn how to depend on the omniscient one. And his Holy Spirit would guide them into all the truth that they needed to know in order to help others learn how to depend on him, too. Remember what Jesus told Thomas back in chapter 14? I am the way, the what? Truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. The spirit of truth is the spirit of Christ himself. And he would guide these disciples into all that Christ is and all that Christ says and all that Christ does. And just like Jesus only ever said and did what the Father gave him to say and do, the Holy Spirit would only ever speak what he heard from the Father and the Son. This reality affirms the unity of the Trinity, The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will never say or do anything contradictory to one another because they are one and the same God. And that means that the message of Christ is trustworthy. Why? Because it's the message that was given by the Father, revealed by the Son, and confirmed by the Holy Spirit. What is all the truth that the Holy Spirit would guide these disciples into? It's this message of Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 14, Jesus told them, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. That's how we ended up with the four gospels. John's gospel is evidence of that reality coming true. We read a little bit ago that Jesus told them at the end of chapter 15, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, again, that the work of the Trinity together. The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will also testify because you've been with me from the beginning. That's how we ended up with the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament epistles. It's a testimony from the apostles and the spirit of what Christ had done. Now here in verse 13, 
Jesus told them that the spirit of truth would also declare to them what is to come. He would help them apply the finished work of Jesus to their lives and help them help others do the same. He would help them live as resurrected children of the kingdom of God until the kingdom is consummated at Christ's return. And at least for John, he would reveal what was to come at the end of days. That's how we got the book of Revelation. What all this means then for us is that the entire New Testament is the fulfillment of Jesus' words right here. It's the collaborative testimony of the Holy Spirit and the apostles who were there with Jesus from the beginning. It's the New Testament, the New Testimony, right? Not altogether different from the Old Testament, not replacing the Old Testament, not contrary to the Old Testament, but it is the revelation of what was hinted at in the Old Testament and the full and complete picture of who Jesus is and consequently then who God is and how we ought to then live in response to that. Not response to that, in response to him. You see, what you hold in your laps, what I have right here in my hands, what we open and read from every single Sunday, and I pray that you and I are opening and reading from every single day. This is reliable. This is trustworthy. We hold in our hands the true and complete testimony of God about himself, and it all centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. All on Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit himself actually models how we ought to respond to the revelation of God in Christ, because as our last point tells us, he will glorify Jesus. Look at verse 14 and 15. Jesus says it, he will glorify me, because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. One pastor commented on this and he said, there's no rivalry in the Godhead. You ever have rivalry in your family? There's no rivalry in the Godhead. It's true, right? Why does the Spirit take from what is Christ and share it with the disciples? For his own glory? No. He does it to glorify Christ who came to glorify the Father who delights in glorifying the Son. Isn't that beautiful? The Holy Spirit isn't taking anything that Jesus hasn't given to him freely. And all that Jesus has has to give the Holy Spirit comes from the Father freely. It's a beautiful unity of perfect love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would glorify Jesus by taking from what is Christ and declaring it to these disciples. Again, the New Testament is the result of this. We are reading from the fruit of that promise. But what's the point of all this then? If, if all of that Jesus was saying here was specifically for these first disciples, how is it for our benefit that Jesus went away and sent the Holy Spirit to him? Do, is all that we get out of this, which would be amazing, is all that we get out of this the New Testament? Or do we get more? It was because of the Holy Spirit that these first disciples took from what is Christ and declared it to others, and the church was formed through their witness 
and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We see the beginning of this in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit descended upon the disciples and empowered Peter's testimony and brought conviction to the world. There were people there from all over, every nation, for the festival of Pentecost. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts and on into the New Testament, we see that the same Holy Spirit who was sent to these first disciples was sent then also to indwell every disciple of Jesus all over the world. The Holy Spirit who helped them write the New Testament is the same Holy Spirit who helps us understand what they wrote. That's what we read about in 1 Corinthians 2 this morning for our prayer time. Do you know what Jesus was essentially telling his disciples in this passage? We could summarize it this way. Hey, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll keep your eyes fixed right on me. He will keep your attention on me. The Spirit didn't come to replace Jesus. He came to bring the fullness of Jesus' presence into the lives of his disciples then and into the lives of his disciples now. It can be tempting for us to envy those first disciples, right? Because they got to walk with Jesus. They got to talk with Jesus. They know what he looks like what he did, what he ate, all these different things, right? And it can be like, man, I wish I was there at that time. But they actually, even them who were walking and talking with Jesus in the flesh, they actually had a closer relationship with Jesus after he left and sent them his Holy Spirit because the Spirit gave them not only a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, but he also enabled them to never be apart from Christ again. Never. Because the Spirit is the very presence of Christ in them forever. That is the kind of relationship that you and I now have with Jesus through his Holy Spirit. If you have put your trust in Christ, the Spirit dwells in you, and you'll never have to go look for Jesus because he's right here with you. The Holy Spirit didn't simply come and lead us to a greater knowledge about Christ. He came to lead us to Christ himself. What a savior we have. The testimony of the Holy Spirit and the first disciples throughout the New Testament is this. Hear this. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus Christ. See his great love for you through his willing sacrifice. See his great power through his triumphant resurrection from the dead. Look at his sovereign reign as the son of God seated at the right hand of the father, governing all things for the good of the church. See, look to his glorious return at the end of days when he will righteously judge all who have rejected him along with the ruler of this world once and for all. And praise God, he will bring all his spirit-indwelled disciples into his kingdom when he makes all things new forever. Look at this, Jesus. Look at this, Jesus. Trust him. Love him. Obey him. Follow him. He is with you. And he is in you. And as those in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells, we now join in this testimony of the Spirit of truth and the disciples to whom he was sent first. That means that as we point others to Christ, guess what? We don't have to create something. We don't have to make up words. We don't have to come up with some clever logic. 
We have everything we need right here and the true and trustworthy word of God. What we do is continue their testimony by repeating it ourselves. It doesn't mean that we, uh, we neglect or dismiss the Old Testament because we use the New Testament to point to Christ. Instead, it means that we help people see that the Jesus of the New Testament is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament points to. We don't claim to have new revelation from God because there isn't any. Because uh, uh, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the wisdom of God in the Holy Spirit and his word. Instead, we point to the complete revelation of God in Scripture and we pray. Oh, we pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired these words will use these words to convict unbelievers in this world of their need for Jesus Christ and enable him, them to turn to him in faith just as he has done for us. Listen, if the Holy Spirit enabled them to write all of this, should we be so silly, foolish, to think that he won't also enable us through these words to clearly communicate the gospel to others. Get to know this. This is where the gospel lives. And it also lives in you because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Don't quench the spirit. The word and the spirit work together so that we join in the testimony of the spirit and the disciples, those first disciples to say, look at Jesus Christ. No disciple of Jesus can live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit keeps us in Christ and keeps Christ in us forever. That's why it was good news that Jesus left these first disciples and sent them the Holy Spirit. It was through Christ leaving that he would send his Holy Spirit to minister to them and through them so that every disciple, including these first ones, can have a relationship with Jesus that's closer and richer and more complete than even these disciples had with Jesus while he was here on earth with them. When the Holy Spirit came to them, he testified about Jesus alongside these first disciples. And now he continues to testify alongside us as we continue to look to his word. He convicted the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, and he continues to do that every time the gospel is proclaimed. Why? Because it doesn't come from man's wisdom. It comes by the power of God. He guided these disciples into all the truth by enabling them to write the New Testament, and now he guides us into all the truth by using the New Testament to lead us to Jesus and help us understand even the Old Testament that leads us to Jesus. And now he guides us. I just said that. It's worth repeating. He guides us into all the truth by using this, his word that points us to Jesus Christ and he continues to glorify Jesus by taking all that Jesus gave to these disciples and declaring it to us. So may this Jesus, in who, who now lives in us, may he be glorified through us as we love him, trust him, obey him, and follow him, not in our own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of truth, whom he has sent to us. Amen. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're thankful that even today, 
He has taken your word and will take your word and apply it to our hearts. Not so that we just feel better about ourselves, but so that we glory in Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died and rose and was exalted so that we could know him and love him and live with him forever. Thank you, God, that we don't have to wait until Christ returns to be with him, that you have sent him to us in your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would strengthen us through your word as your church until he returns. We ask this in his name. Amen.